podcast. We are a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and our aim is to be a diverse family of believers living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. This sermon is part of our Advent 2022 series, Far As the Curse is Found. If you would like to find out more information about Emmanuel, visit our website at emmanuelbirmingham.com. Thank you for listening and Merry Christmas. Isaiah 11, 1 through 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. Um... I hope you're doing well. I, uh, I'm super thankful for um, a variety of things. I'm thankful for uh, our, all of our volunteers uh, that serve on Sunday mornings, you know, even on days where you have like kinks and everything to be worked out. Uh, they, they're still here week after week after week after week serving and giving of their time and their energy. I'm so thankful for them. Um, it's been a full week uh, at our church. Um, Wednesday night, we had our family gathering, which is great. Last night, uh, had a, every quarter we have, or every other month, really, a meeting with our GC leaders together. Where we kind of talk about how everybody's doing, how your groups are doing, encourage one another, pray for one another, build up one another, talk about stuff going forward. That was last night, and I am super thankful for our GC leaders. Uh, we have seven GCs, if you're new with us, that meet around the city and... Uh, they are just so kind and loving, and they love you, and it's uh, so encouraging to get together with them. And if you're not connected to a gospel community at Emmanuel Church, I encourage you to be in one. Um, that's where kind of rubber meets the road of boots on the ground, and what we're talking about on Sunday mornings is kind of fleshed out in real life uh, around community together. And so I encourage you to be a part of one of those. There's information back there as you leave if you need some. Um, but it's been a full week. I'm tired, but I'm grateful. It's, been, it's a good tired, and so I'm really, really thankful. 
So this is obviously our second week of Advent. Um, started our sermon series last week, and as Cody explained briefly earlier, uh, the candle, or Gabe, excuse me, the candle we lit this morning is the faith candle, or the Bethlehem candle. Uh, it draws our minds back to that first Advent, that first Christmas, and as we read our text today, uh, as Gabe read, the faith of Mary, and then the faith of Joseph, and believing the word of the Lord, and acting upon the word of the Lord. And how we, as believers today, pray that that is emulated in us, that we possess that same kind of faith by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, um, that they possess, even in a moment, and we think about what they're walking through that first Christmas season. I mean, they're, they're scared out of their minds, probably. This weird thing's going on. Uh, you know, Mary's about to have a baby. She's never been with a man. You know, it's just weird stuff, all right? Just things going on. But they believed the word of the Lord that he cared for them, he's going to be faithful to them. So it's just an amazing, amazing thing. I pray we never lose the, the awe and the wonder of, of this season and what it just symbolizes and represents for our church and for us as a people of God. So as I preached last week, if you missed it, <clears throat> I encourage you to go back. I'm not going to rehash everything, but Advent is a word that literally means coming or arrival. Uh, it's the fulfillment of one's waiting, you know, as the object of that waiting finally finds its home uh, with you. Last week, we talked about the advent of peace, that Jesus is the coming Prince of Peace, that he came to bring peace, that first advent, to bring rest with him, that we can now have peace with God, peace from our works, peace from hostilities that existed between us and God through faith in Christ, and that peace now is possible among one another and even among the nations today in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, As we see every day through lived experience, the peace of Christ is an already and a not yet, right? It's already being experienced, but full final peace is yet to come. So you just flip on the news and see wars and rumors of wars. And in your own lives, maybe there's a lack of peace in your own hearts. That is evidence that there's still work left to be done. That peace has come, but it's not yet fully come in Christ. We're waiting for him to come back and restore that peace once again. So Advent is a season of an already not yet. Christ has already come, bringing with him peace, as we just talked about, but also what we're going to talk about today, coming as the King of Kings, first and foremost, once, but he will come again, not yet. He has not yet come back to reclaim and restore all things that have been broken by the fall and sit on his ultimate throne, reigning over new heavens and a new earth. So it's an already, not yet. So we're going to see that again today in our text for this morning. But before we do that, I want to pray for us again as we enter into the time in the word of the Lord. So let me pray for us, and then may God be gracious to us. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe, Lord, that you have, because of Christ Jesus, filled us all up, for those of us that have trusted him, with your Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that opens up our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear and believe the truth of the gospel. And I pray you help us, aid us in that today. All of us have areas of our lives where we are in rebellion, where we are not listening to you, not walking with you. And I pray by your grace and your grace alone that you correct us today. May Christ reign in our hearts in every aspect not just those we choose to let him reign in. So Father, change us, convict us, correct us, but give us great joy and hope as we look forward to the day when Christ comes. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A point for us, a king to judge us, 
like all the nations. Give us a king to judge us. These are the words of Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you've read the story of Israel up to 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's not hard to empathize with their demand for a king. If you remember, it's a brief Old Testament history lesson here. Joshua had led the people out. Uh, Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses dies. Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land to where at the end of the book of Joshua, they are in the land and the people commit to serve the Lord the entirety of their days. Joshua 24, remember the day, uh, the, the saying, you know, uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And all the people are like, yeah, we'll, we'll serve the Lord. Um, and Joshua's then like, no, you're not. You're not going to serve the Lord. Um, it's really kind of disheartening. You read it, and they're like, we'll do it. And he's like, you're not going to do it. Um, and then, sure enough, by Judges chapter 1, you flip over literally a page. And it's the first chapter of Judges where all of this foreshadowing and groundwork is beginning to be laid for Israel's failure. If you read the history of Israel to that point, you would have read the charge given by God to his people that as you go into the land, you need to dispossess the people in the land, take over the land for yourselves, drive out the inhabitants of the land entirely. But you're 18 verses into Judges chapter 1, one chapter removed from Joshua 24 and this big commitment of the people, right? And you're 18 verses in and you read, but Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Uh-oh, number one in Judges. And two verses later, Judges 121, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And this refrain over and over runs throughout the first couple of chapters of Judges. They did not drive out the nations who lived in the land. And the results were devastating and disastrous. Israel fell into idolatry repeatedly, you know, worshiping the gods of the nations, violating the first commandment of the Lord and the Ten Commandments to have no other gods before him. They'd forgotten their God, gone after the gods of the nations. But God in his mercy and his grace, he would send them judges. And a judge in the Old Testament were leaders that God would appoint to come in and deliver his people. So primarily, the, they would deliver them through military might, but they would come in and they would deliver the people. And there was a difference between judges and kings, a big difference. One, God picked the judges, first off, where many times kings would descend through lineage, right? Started off picked at the beginning. Then if you're born into that line, you're descending from the king. But these judges were also primarily warriors. They weren't really administrators. So they'd come in, deliver the people from these, these other nations that had taken them over, and they would free them. And so God sends a judge, and this judge delivered, deliver the people from their physical bondage. And the people would repent for a little while, and then they'd be enticed again by the nations to go after their gods, and they would, and God of Israel would give them up to their heart's desires and let them be taken over in captivity again. And this cycle just continues all throughout the book of Judges, this cycle of sin, judgment, cry out to God, deliverance, renewal, sin, judgment, cry out to God, deliverance, renewal, sin. It's just on and on and on throughout the book of Judges and even through the prophets, if you read the prophets. But this, as the cycle continues, <clears throat> it just progressively gets worse. Devastation continues and the spiral of, of just depravity just goes down and down and down for the people of Israel. At the very end of the book of Judges, final verse reads, and there was no king in Israel 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone was a king or a queen unto themselves. Everyone dictated for themselves what was right and wrong, what was true and not true, what was acceptable or not acceptable. And the nation continued to go down and down deeper into despair. But God always remembers his people. He's always compassionate and merciful towards them when they do not deserve it. And so you get into 1 Samuel and he sends them Samuel, this baby born of a miracle from Hannah. He sends them Samuel and Samuel actually is the final judge. He doesn't know it, but we know it. He's the final judge to lead and deliver them from the Philistines who had captured the Ark of God and were holding the people of Israel in oppression at that time. But even Samuel has his flaws, primarily flaws in how he parents his kids. For 1 Samuel chapter 8, right before the people of Israel demand a king, the writer of 1 Samuel tells us that as Samuel is getting older, he appoints his kids to be the next judges. That's problematic for two reasons. I've already given you one reason it's problematic is God appoints judges, not humans. It's not a descent, a descending line like it is for kings. But the second reason it's problematic is the text tells us at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8 that his kids, quote, did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, when you're about to fulfill the role of a judge <laughs> by the standards of the Bible and what a judge was, the description you don't want attached to your name is the description of taking bribes and perverting justice, right? But the people of Israel, they see that these are the judges that are about to govern them, that are about to come over and take over and seek to deliver them. Which, and instead of turning back to God and letting him appoint a judge for them, which would have been the appropriate thing to do, they instead take matters into their own hands and they demand a king. But not just any king but a king, quote, like the other nations. The nations they were commanded to be distinct from, they are now seeking to be like. And it's a problem. And Samuel failed to trust God in his nepotism, you know, appointing for himself his corrupt sons rather than allowing God's people, God to appoint the judges for Israel. And the people fell to trust God. For as 1 Samuel goes on, the Lord is very clear to remind the people and remind Samuel, hey, you're not rejecting Samuel, you're rejecting me. I am your king. I'm the only king you are to have. You're rejecting me. But they insist, give us a king. And so God allows them to have a king. He gives them a lot of warnings that this, these kings are going to oppress them and manipulate them and exploit them, but they want a king anyway. And as time goes on, God does time and time again. These kings drive the nation to horrible places and God once again steps in to take something horrible and turn it into good. You know, if you take a look around in our day, <clears throat> particularly during election seasons, but really every day, it's not difficult to see similarities between Israel's demands and hopes for a king and our demands and hopes for rulers in our day. You know, leaders in our modern American context all run on the same platform. They do. 
I mean, they may differ on social issues, liberal, conservative, or philosophy of government, big or small, or taxes, more or less. But the basis, the foundation of every single political platform is the same, and it's hope. It's hope. I can deliver you from the mess you find yourself in, the mess the previous guy left us in. Hope in me. I mean, listen to some of these examples, campaign slogans from the past presidential runs. I could literally go back to 1876, but I'm not going to. I'm going to start in 1960. Um, Richard Nixon, all right? Peace. He lost this election, by the way. Peace, experience, prosperity. That's a slogan. Peace, experience, prosperity. I can bring you these three things. I can bring you peace. I can bring you prosperity. And I can bring you, what's the third one? Uh, experience, <laughs> experience, because he was an old guy. That's why JFK won, because he looked old on TV. Another story for another day. Jesse Jackson, losing candidate, 1988. Keep hope alive, a.k.a. I can keep hope alive if you elect me as president. Bill Clinton, 1992, it's time to change America, a.k.a. America's been bad. Hope in me, I can change it for you. Barack Obama, 2008, change we can believe in. It's been bad, guys. Change you can believe in comes through me. Elect me. Have hope in me. Donald Trump, 2016, make America great again. America hasn't been great, guys. I can make it great again. Hope in me. I can bring you what you need. I can deliver you from your pain. Now, they may never say that. They may never say that. But since the beginning of time, human beings have looked to kings and presidents and rulers for deliverance and hope. And since the beginning of time, we've continued to be let down by rulers and kings and presidents who promised they could deliver hope and could not deliver what they promised. But even amidst the failures of rulers that desire for deliverance, change, and a better state of things, those desires still remain in us even if they can't deliver those things. We see that things are wrong. We see that things are broken down. We need change. We need hope. Yet we continue to put our hope in the wrong people. I mean, it's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But this is us. This is all of us at some time in this room. You know, last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 2. Judah was in this time of great economic and political prosperity under Uzziah, not Isaiah, Uzziah, King Uzziah. But here in chapter 11 of Isaiah, Uzziah, <laughs> two different words, Uzziah is dead. All right, he's dead. King Uzziah is gone. And Ahaz, his son, now sits on the throne. And King Ahaz sought political alliances with Assyria out of fear. Assyria was Israel's great enemy, conquering the world at that time. They're making their way down through the northern tribe of Israel on Judah's doorstep, and Ahaz freaks out. Instead of trusting the Lord, he seeks to make a political alliance with this foreign nation. Isaiah calls him to repent, to trust in God. Ahaz refuses, and Israel becomes a servant nation of Assyria. Judah is right about, it's about to happen, about to happen to her. And coming under the governance of a foreign nation also carried with it the obligation to worship that nation's gods or goddesses. 
So Israel, taken off into exile, begins to worship foreign gods and goddesses in exile. Those that stay in the land worship foreign gods and goddesses. But here Judah is looking at Assyria coming down, knowing all that entails. Ahaz is seeking political alliances, and God is just saying, no, 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 repent, repent, repent. This time of prosperity is now becoming just a shadow of what it once was in the kingdom of Israel. By Isaiah chapter 11, the people of Judah are living in fear of this foreign ruling nation. But God in his great compassion begins through the prophet Isaiah to prophesy about a coming king who is worthy of one's hope, who can follow through on what he promises. For he is the fulfillment of all that kings were intended to be. So... Let's look at our 11 verses for this morning. It can really be divided up into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 9, verses 10 and 11. 1 through 5, 6 through 9, 10 and 11. But let's read verses 1 through 5 again. In this section, we'll, we'll call it the king who is coming. The king who is coming. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Israel's desire for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8 was rooted in their selfish motives to emulate the other nations around them. God gave them what their hearts desired, knowing that full well many things would come through Uh, these horrible kings leading them to horrible places. But this text begins to show us that God can take even the most selfish desires that started off, and after experiencing all the consequences and pain that may come from those desires, how he can turn them into our great good, not just for a certain people group, but for the world, all the nations. A king was coming, and Isaiah begins describing here what this king would be like. In verse 1, he says that he would be a descendant of David. A descendant of David. The language of shoot, stump, branch, roots, this tree language, these words communicate that God is demonstrating his glory through the use of humble means. Now already in Isaiah 4, 6, 9, some of this language has already been used here in Isaiah. But it's this picture of Judah, once a mighty tree, a mighty nation, being cut down to a stump. And all that's left of the tree's glory and grandeur is this lowly stump. When I think about that book, The Giving Tree, if you've ever read The Giving Tree, I mean, it starts off this beautiful tree and by the end it's just a stump with with a man that's exploited this tree all throughout it and this tree that's given unconditional love to the man, right? That's the image in my mind. Not Not that Judah's given unconditional love to God, But when I think about a stump, I think about Judah sitting on what was once great and grand and glorious, but it's now become a stump. But this stump isn't just an ordinary stump. It's the stump of Jesse, the father of King David. 
And to King David, God had made some extraordinary promises. We talked about one of them last week, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll talk about it again in our First and Second Samuel sermon series where God promised David that one would come from his line that would sit on his throne forever. Well, what was once a line of kings full of promise with David and Solomon, that has now been reduced down to rulers of weakness like Ahaz and those that would come after him. A tree has become a stump. But a stump is still full of life. Another tree can grow out of a stump. For a stump still has roots. And out of this stump, life, a branch, will begin to bear fruit. And this fruit-bearing branch will be filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Second characteristic of this king, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's described as being of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, everything kings need to govern and rule well, this coming king will possess all of those characteristics. He'll have them all. All that we desire for a king to be, all the decisions we desire for a king to make, he will make them truly, 100% good all the time. Third, this king will, be, this king will delight in God. This king will delight in God. You know, rather than simply ruling out of duty to the law of the Lord, this coming king will find the deepest pleasures in honoring the God he seeks to serve. His enjoyment comes from seeking divine counsel in all affairs related to governing a people. His allegiance to God won't simply be empty words to pander to people, to gain votes, not the kings that earn votes, but to gain votes, but he will possess true wholehearted devotion to his God. Fourth, he'll carry out justice. He'll carry out justice. Now, carrying out justice and establishing a just society uh, was an ideal among ancient Near Eastern kings. But this coming king will actually be able to deliver what every one of our hearts desires. Fairness, quality, rightness, justice. This king will be able to deliver justice like God. And you remember 1 Samuel 16. I keep going back to Samuel because it's so intricate, integral and, and this understanding of kings, 1 Samuel 16. If you remember the story, Samuel goes to anoint David as the new king. He doesn't know it's David at the time. He goes to Jesse's house. Jesse parades all of his kingly-looking sons, you know, before Samuel. Samuel goes through all of them, gets to the end. None of them are who God wants. So he asks Jesse, is there anybody else? Like, you got a lot of sons here. Is there anybody else? Yeah, the shepherd boy, he's out keeping the sheep. Tell him to come in. And then it the Lord tells, Samuel's confused, the Lord tells him why this is, and God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This coming king won't judge with his ears or eyes by mere external means, but he will administer justice the way God does, by looking at the heart. He won't neglect the poor. He won't show favoritism to the rich. He but to those who possess power in the world, but he will condemn those who are oppressing the poor and destroy simply with the breath of his lips, the word of his mouth, he will destroy the wicked. In fact, righteousness and justice are so intricate to the character of this king described here in the first five verses that verse five tells us that he adorns him like a belt around his waist. 
a belt that symbolizes a readiness for action, but also a belt that holds together everything else. I mean, this is what we all want, right? And this is what we want. Every human being, unless you're a sociopath, you long for and yearn for a king, a ruler who will rule wisely and fairly. One who will right the wrongs of injustice in this world. One who will care for the lowliest of the low, those who have been marginalized and forgotten, pushed aside for those more powerful than themselves. We desire for a king to rule wisely, to not make brash decisions, to punish the lawbreakers. You know, this coming king will possess all of those qualities. He'll fulfill all of the hopes we have in those who rule and govern us. You know, these words of Isaiah, I mean, they're probably proclaimed 730-ish years before the coming of Christ into this world, that first advent. You know, those seven centuries after these words are proclaimed are pretty terrible. They're pretty terrible kings that come. I mean, you have a couple of bright lights like Josiah, even Hezekiah to a certain degree, but it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. But I'm confident those yearnings and desires for a king were still in the hearts of the people of Israel and Judah as they are in ours. So when Matthew very clearly opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus and explicitly states that Jesus is a descendant of King David, a son of Jesse. One reading that gospel may have their ears perk up a little bit. Hmm, a shoot, a branch from the stump of Jesse. And then you think about the means by which Jesus came. He didn't come as a rider on a horse, conquering. He didn't come into palaces with gold and all the valuables of the earth, just filling his baby room, a gold-plated cradle. He didn't come in any of that stuff, right? He came by humble means. A baby, born in a barn, surrounded by a bunch of animals, literally depending for his life on a very woman and man that he made. Think about that. He made them. And he, even in that moment, was sustaining them some mysterious, crazy way. Humble means a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And then you get to Jesus entering into his ministry, beginning the ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist, the River Jordan. And you read the account of Matthew 3, having already established that Jesus was from the line of Jesse, and the reader sees that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So you have line of David, Spirit of God resting upon this man. Could this be the coming king they've been waiting on? And then you see the ministry of Jesus begin to unfold, healing the sick, touching lepers. You don't do that. He's touching lepers, caring for the poor, seeking out the marginalized in society. Elevating women, bring justice to places where injustice reigned. As one reads these gospel, uh, the accounts in the Gospels, as they see righteousness and justice characterize the life and ministry of Jesus, it's not difficult to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this coming King. 
You know, even as he processes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the people see that he's this coming king. They're expecting something else, but they see this guy is very kingly when they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. An address and proclamation only reserved for kings. But Jesus came and he established a kingdom not quite what people were expecting or looking for. Consisting of, they were looking for a kingdom consisting of power and of might and of glory on this earth. Spiritual kingdom advancing in the hearts and lives of churches for the last 2,000 years were not something the first people there were really looking for. Christ has already come as king. See, already, he's come as king. And he has established his kingdom in the first advent. His kingdom that is set up even here, right now, among us. But he has not yet come again and fully and finally set up his kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth that he will remake at that second advent. Verses 1 through 5 describe a king who's coming, or from our vantage point, a king who came. The already Yet verses 6 through 11 describe a kingdom that is coming, and not yet, that we are awaiting now. And this kingdom that's coming is comprised of two components in these verses. The first, verses 6 through 9, describe the creation he is restoring. The creation he is restoring. Let's read it again, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. And this is kind of wild, is it not? I mean, it's crazy, this picture that's being painted here. Predator and prey living together. Lions eating straw like a bunch of herbivores. You know, kids hanging out with cobras. I mean, it's crazy. It's weird. It's crazy. It's nuts. But it's another way God is reversing the curse of the fall from Genesis chapter 3. Far as the curse is found far as the curse is found. You know, last week, we saw God and Jesus reversing the curse of the ground, like swords and spears beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks, bringing forth fruit from the ground, warriors becoming farmers. We see here Isaiah prophesying a day when, when the curse of a broken creation will be restored. If you remember back in Genesis 2, before sin came into the world, uh, God uh, commissioned Adam to name all the animals, right? So God parades all these animals before Adam, and he names them. All the animals just coming by and just hanging out, and he's naming all these animals, and there's no danger. There's no fear. He's not worrying that lion's going to turn on him at any point, just maul his face off. You know, it's not happening. There's harmony and communion between man and nature, untarnished and unbroken because of our sin. But Genesis 3 comes and Eve is tempted by a serpent. 
Could have been a cobra. I don't know. Serpent. Created being that then brings enmity between humans and creation until Christ returns. But here, Isaiah is telling of a day when that harmony will be reestablished, when it will be restored. And then verse 9 gives the basis for this restored earth. On his holy mountain, which we talked about last week, Isaiah chapter 2, his holy mountain, go back and listen to it. All conflict, evil, and death will be no more. Not simply for the people living on that mountain, but for the entire created order. This is a complete restoration of all things God made in the beginning. Good things will no longer be marred by sin, and those good things will no longer sin. So not only will they feel the, not only feel the effects of sin, they won't commit acts of sin. Sin is no more. It's gone. For from God's holy mountain, the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Every living being will live in complete harmony with its created purpose. Glory to God will emanate from every created thing on this planet. To quote one commentator, as water finds its way into every cavern in its depths, so true knowledge of God will find its way into every recess of the earth. This is the creation our King will be restoring. And he has the power and the resolve to carry out what he intends to do. And Isaiah wraps up our text for this morning by once again describing the people our king is redeeming. So section three, the people the king is redeeming. Read verses 10 and 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, a.k.a. from everywhere. God's people have been scattered. The root from the stump of Jesse, the king coming to rule in justice and righteousness, filled with the spirit of God, the king who will restore all all the created order to a place of harmony and peace, not enmity. This king's kingdom will consist of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. His kingdom is global in scope. His kingdom is all the heavens and all the earth. And a signal here, this language of a signal, in some translations it's a banner, the word banner. Something that would mark a rallying point for armies or peoples to come to and receive a word uh, together from their commanding officer or hear a word from the king. And Isaiah here is saying that the coming king would be that banner for all peoples. He would be that signal. This root from the stump of Jesse would be that signal that all the nations would rally to this holy mountain where this permanent banner or signal would be elevated. And a banner must be distinct, right? You don't want to confuse your signal or your banner with another signal or banner from another army, from another kingdom. 
So the signal must be distinct as to where to gather. This banner was theirs and not some other king or kingdom's rallying point. So what is the banner for us as believers? What is the banner? Where do we metaphorically rally and wait for the nations to join us? Well, Jesus tells us, he tells us, John 12, 32, very near to his death, he says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The banner, the signal, is the cross. The distinguishing mark of Christianity, our rallying place, is the cross. We gather at the cross, for it's at the cross we find hope in our king and our identity as citizens in his kingdom. You know, God is in the process of gathering his people from all nations, and our role is to lift up the cross. You know, in a world, not just a nation like America, but in a world full of people who place great hope in kings and queens and rulers to deliver them from their present turmoil and distress, we lift up the true king, a crucified king, the only one who can deliver what he promises he will do. And he gathers us all to the cross. And we wait again. In the second advent, we wait for our king. And we're tempted to place our hope in the kings of this world. We remember the words of Jesus when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The declaration on our lips, church, is not give us a king that we may be like the other nations. The declaration on our lips is behold our king who is the hope of the nations. That's what we speak. So may we wait with hope, church, holding high and living out the banner, the signal of the cross every single day of our lives so that God and his grace may draw the nations to himself. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have established your kingdom here and that it comprises of people not like me. And I'm thankful, O oh God, that Christ in the resurrection has assumed his heavenly throne. And we await his coming again that he may assume his earthly throne, the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that day. We long for that day. Have mercy on us when we place our hope in other men and women that promise things they cannot deliver. May we be people of Christ's kingdom first and then people of this American kingdom second. For Jesus is our king. He is our king. 
Father, I pray by the Spirit you transform us even more into citizens of His kingdom. And when we fall short of the expectations of those citizens, we praise you that you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So may we fall back on your grace. Father, we love you. Draw people through us to the cross. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.